Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. And now, here's an Indie Blues double shot from our featured artist today, Papa Chubby. And stay tuned for that interview. It comes up right after these songs. Girl 
was Papa Chubby from his brand new release, and we got Papa Chubby on the line right now. Hey, Papa, how you doing? Papa Chubby in the house. Good to speak to you guys. How y'all doing, man? I'm doing pretty good, you know? I'm just trying to stay out of trouble. It's not one of my many talents, you know what I mean? <laughs> I hear you, brother. Me too, man. So let's, uh, you know, you've been on the show before, but I always like to give our fans this opportunity to really get to know an artist. And the best way to do that is through your journey. So give us the story of Papa Chubby. Um, I'll give it to you in four words. Music saved my life. Okay. And That's the Rita Digest version. And, and the, how did the, that the happen? The long version we might not have enough time for, but... All I can say is that I grew up in the 60s in the Bronx. Um, I was exposed to a lot of music at a very young age because my parents owned a candy store in the Bronx on Arthur Avenue, and we had a jukebox in the candy store, and all I did was play that jukebox, and when the guy came to change the records every week, I got the old singles. So by the time I was six, I had about 545s. Wow. Nice. And uh, plus all my dad's. 78s and, and 33s. My dad was an old jazz and blues fan. His favorite song was St. James Infirmity. Infirmary Blues, man. Um, so, at an early age, I really got exposed to a lot of music, man. And and then we started going upstate to Marlboro, New York for the summers to spend the summers at a place called Sanka Tree, which was Floyd Patterson's training camp, who was the heavyweight champ of the world. My dad was partners with him. And in the lounge of this hotel, there was a band that played every weekend called the Four Aces. And I was like six or five. I would sit transfixed watching these guys until one of them let me come up and play the drums. And they saw that I could. And then they heard I could sing. So I became part of the act at like five. I used to get up there and sing uh, Donny Osmond. <laughs> okay. To admit, but I did. Well, they call it puppy love, which is actually a Paul Anker song. It's not even a Donny Asin song, but that was the hit of the day. And, you know, at five years old, I had all these, like, 50-year-old women, women fawning over me. I thought, hey, you know, this is pretty good, man. I'm getting hugs and kisses here. I might want to do this for a living. So I convinced one of the guys in the band, his name was Tony. He was from the Bronx. Um, he was a Puerto Rican gentleman. He taught me how to play a little bass taught me a few chords on the guitar and then that was it because all those guys wanted to do after they got done playing was play poker man <laughs> and they didn't want the little kids around when they were playing poker <laughs> so from there man you know I just started playing whatever I could you know and rock and roll and you know Led Zeppelin and Cream and Hendrix and then I discovered Freddie King being Albert and um, you know I wound up playing guitar and bass for a lot of people, man. You know, as a side man, I wound up playing in hardcore bands and punk rock bands and blues bands and gospel bands. I was just gun for hire. And then I started my own thing in 1999. 1990, um, I met a gentleman named Buddy Fox who booked a club called Manny's Car Wash in the Upper East Side. Oh, but yeah. he was a real empresario. Man, he had booked the Lone Star before that. And he took a liking to me and... Um, really helped me become who I am today and I'm still in touch with him. He's 95 years old and lives in Hawaii now. So I love you, buddy, man. Thank you for everything you did for me. And that's a big part of this, man. It's paying respect. It's paying respect for those who helped you along the way. It's paying respect for those who paved the way for the music, the older guys, and even the guys who are still on the scene like me. You know, I mean, I've achieved longevity in this business, man. I've been around for 35 years now, still making records and still touring. And I'm still, you know, one of the um, top acts on the international touring circuit. So I'm doing something right, but I have no idea what it is. <laughs> okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about this new release you have out. Um, yeah. What was your inspiration for this? Man, my inspiration was simply this, to make best record composed of individual songs that I could. You know, all too many times you buy a record and there's one or two good tracks on it and the rest is filler. And when I mean filler, I don't mean it's bad. You could just tell that they didn't really focus on those songs. With me, I wanted to build every song as if it were a single. Maybe it comes to being, from being a kid and listening to singles, you know? That's what it's about for me. In the studio, man, you want to make a hit 
you want to make a song that people remember. And I think I did really well. And I think I also wanted to, like I said, pay respect, tribute to some of the music that's important to me. So we recorded um, a um, Willie Dixon song that um, Muddy sang, Hoochie Coochie Man, and we recorded Elmore James' Dust My Broom. So I think those are two nice additions to the record, as well as my own individual compositions, which I'm feeling very proud of. Okay. Well, let's let's talk about your process as a songwriter. You know, uh, every songwriter has their way of tapping into the muse and getting the gears rolling. When you sit down to write, what is kind of your process that allows you to kind of get that pen working on the paper? Well, right there, you put your finger on the button, my friend. If you sit around waiting for a process to enable you to put a finger on a, a pen on a paper, you're not an artist, you're not a songwriter. Maybe you're a technician, but it doesn't matter. A real writer is always writing. I'm always writing, I'm always getting ideas. I keep a log in my notepad of every idea I get and I go back to them. Sometimes I'm driving and a whole entire song comes to me. I'll dictate it to my wife. I'll say, write this down. <laughs> sometimes it'll be crap and sometimes it'll be really good. Sometimes I'll write stuff I forgot about and come back to it years later, man. And um, I think that's why I've been so prolific. There's no detachment between Ted Horowitz and Papa Chubby. It's all an organic manifestation of the spirit that I've been given in this body, in this lifetime, man. So I'm always in it, you know? I mean, I think the biggest gift I've received is the ability to try and live in the moment, man. And that really enables me to be a better writer. And, and to be a pro prolific writer. I never lack for inspiration. Never. Okay. And that, that's the key, to allow inspiration to happen. To realize you are not important. I will say that again. You, the artist, are not important. What's important is the energy that's coming through you. So you got to make yourself an open channel for that. Now, you know, a lot of writers, um, you know, lyric is one thing. It's a very structured process, but right. melody's a little different. Some oh, writers yeah. like to work off a groove. Others like to mm -hmm. allow the cadence of the lyric to dictate where the melody should go. Right. What do you do to find your melodies? Um, melodies are magical. They, they, even Keith Richards says this, they lilt, lilt, lilt around in the ether, man. And you reach up. As they pass by, you pull one down, man. And if you don't pull it down, it keeps traveling to somebody else, man. Um, you know, uh, melody is an interesting concept because they say music is composed of two elements, rhythm and melody, right? For me, without both of them, you don't have a song. The, the other thing you need when you write a song are hooks. Hooks happen on several levels. You have a rhythmic hook, and that's where the groove comes in. If you ain't got a groove, you ain't got nothing. You build a house from the bottom up, always. You might have a melody, but until you link it to something on the bottom, it's not gonna stand, man. Right. So there has to be a link. There have to be primary hooks. There have to be secondary hooks. And they have to be invisible. What I mean by that is you cannot telegraph your hooks. That The worst thing in a song is when you know the surprise is coming. The best thing, it's when it happens once in the song and doesn't happen again, and you're waiting for it. You know what I mean? Right, right, yeah. Now, That's an art, man. That's I mean, it, it, It's really an art, man, and I, you know, I do my best to try and achieve it, but, you know, again, there are people a lot better than it, at it than I am, but I get those people to learn from and study. And luckily, there's so much awesome information out there, man. Like, to me, I always go back to the standards for inspiration. Because it was already stated. Right. You know, all we got to do is understand it, know it, and use it. Now, um, you had mentioned earlier about how you use the notepad on your phone uh, as part of your writing process. You know, you know, ca catching all these inspirations as they come by. What are some of the other tools that you use when you sit down to write songs that you find is indispensable to you as a writer? Well, I have a studio in my house. Which okay. makes a big difference. First of all, the recording and writing process, speaking from the terms of being on both ends of the microphone, being having been a producer and having been an artist, 
the recording studio can be absolutely the worst place for creativity for a lot of people. And what I mean by that is that if you're not used to the recording process, you go into a place that's alien to you and immediately puts you on edge because you're anxious about being there. And then you have X amount of time and it's expensive at X amount of dollars and you have to do it, you have to create. And for a lot of people that can be difficult without the right guide, i.e. producer, i.e. engineer, it can be really hard to make a good record, man. For me, I learned early on, I worked in studios as an engineer, you know, from the time I was 14, man. So when I started making money, all I did, I had a studio in New York City, a commercial studio. All I did was buy gear, man. And, um, you know, for me, having the studio and also being able to play various instruments, if I have a concept, man, I can go and lay, lay down a groove, I can lay down a bass line, I can throw a guitar point on it, I can throw a vocal on it, I can see how it lives, man, right? Sometimes that initial recording will be the one I use on the record, and it'll be all me, and then I'll add a couple of things on top of it. You know, and sometimes it winds up, winds up being a sketch, so I can show musicians my ideas. It's all about communication, man. It's about, about communing, communicating your ideas to the people you're working with and also to the people you want to listen. Okay. Now, you know, every songwriter, when they sit down to write, they always got to get to that moment where they put that pen down and they give the song to the producer, the, <laughs> the musicians, uh, you know, and allow them to put their fingerprints on it. But you have to make that decision when that is the time to do that. How do you determine that moment in a song's life? It really depends on the level of the artist's skills and maturity. And I've produced artists who came to me. I, I, like, I'll give you an example. Somebody I love, by the way. Do you know Elijah Neals? Oh, yeah, I know Eliza. Okay, well, I produced a record for Elijah two records ago. And when she came to me, she just had bare sketches of songs. She didn't even have songs. You know, she just had a lyrical idea, some chords, and maybe a groove. And with her, I had to put everything together, man. Once it's all together, again, I, I arranged it, I played on it, I helped record it, and I mixed it. Once it's done, it's time to put down the pen. You know, you know. You know, as an artist, and that's the other thing, man, you gotta know how not to overwrite. Overwriting is the biggest crime in songwriting, man. Yeah. You know, leave it alone. Leave it alone. Not everything needs a middle eight. An obligatory middle eight is not your friend. You know, a lot of people write a bridge because they think, well, a song has a bridge, doesn't it? I got two words for you, buddy. Wow, thing. Yep. You know, this is what I always tell artists when they're writing, when I'm producing them, I'm like, go back and write wild thing. Write your version of wild thing. And then they hate me. <laughs> <laughs> or I tell them they should record I'm Too Sexy for My Shirt. I produced the band and I said, guys, you've got to record this. And it would have been brilliant for this. I produced this Italian duo and they were kind of campy, but they were good. And I said, you've got to record this song. It would be great. You two guys singing, I'm too sexy for my shirt. Too sexy. It hurts. And they just wouldn't go for it, man. What are you going to do? <laughs> Sometimes my genius goes unappreciated. Yeah, I know what you mean. Now let's let's talk a little bit about uh, going in the studio and recording. Now, as a studio owner and an engineer producer, uh, and you know, I've been a recording engineer now since 1980. Um, you know, and you know, I, I'm like you. I'm, you know, I have a serious case of gas. You know, gear acquisition syndrome. Oh God, you, know. you got to come to my house. Dude. Oh man, what you got to see mine. Yeah. <laughs> well, I sell guitars. For too. You know, I have a side business okay. where I, I sell vintage guitars. All right. Yeah. You so, know, yeah. I used to buy and sell guitars out of the pawn shops in Jamaica, Queens. <laughs> you remember? Don't I know it, man. Yeah. And do you remember We Buy on 48th Street? Do I and, remember We Buy? Are you kidding me? Yeah. Yeah, I remember when when um, the vintage guitar market went insane because 2008 no it was earlier than that it was in the 90s oh, well. when these Japanese businessmen came over and they bought everything oh yeah yeah no I remember that they used to come to the guitar shows with cases full of money 
Yeah, and just... And then Japan crashed. Yeah. But then what happened in 2008, the market crashed. The guitar market crashed. And now it's back better than ever. Oh, yeah. guitars are the best investment you can make, man. But we buy, man. I bought my first guitar there, which was a Melody Maker with a headstock crack. Okay. And I, re I remember they had a 59 burst in the window for $34,000. And I remember thinking, I'll never have $34,000. And if I had bought that guitar now, it would be worth half a million. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Bonamassa would have already bought it. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't he? Yeah, I remember, I'm, you know, I used to get Les Paul Customs for like 250 bucks Nobody out of the punch. Nobody yeah. wanted old guitars. People, you used to get 50s Kellys for $500. I talked to Jeannie Smith about that, man. Yeah. Yeah, there was, was a lot of good stuff going on, yeah. especially and in now, Queens. Yeah, man, forget it. I'm just, I'm talking to this guy about a 52 Blackguard Kelly. He wants 57 grand for it. Okay. Yeah. That's <laughs> nice. A lot of money, but, yeah. you know, it's only going to go up. Now, you know, as a, as an engineer to engineer, what, what DAW are you using? What do you find that, that's, you know, that really fits your workflow in the studio? I'm going to tell you the best thing I ever heard in my life. And it came from Tom Dowd. You know Tom Dowd? Oh, was? yeah, he's my hero. Well, Tom produced my record, Booty and the Beast. Okay. It was the most amazing experience I ever had in my life. Not only that, I had a project studio on Washington Street and Bethune Street in Manhattan in the basement. And Tom came down there to do pre-production. And he recognized the building and said, this building used to be Bell Laboratories. This is where they developed television, and I worked here during the Manhattan Project. Wow. Okay. Right? Yeah. Tom said to me, a good engineer should be able to make a great record with any equipment in any studio. The biggest thing I learned from Tom is that the chain when you're recording between elements and recording source, albeit tape or digital, and really... I'll say this also. Tom hated analog tape. He loved digital. Well, I, I agree with him on that. You know, I, I do too, man. And you can yeah. make digital sound great. Depends on how you get into it. So the most important thing is to leave the signal chain alone as much as possible. Do not load it up with in, inserts. Try, it, try not to use EQ when you're tracking. You shouldn't have to use EQ when you're tracking. You only want to EQ once, not twice. Right. You know? Well, yeah, I've been a subscriber to that mentality all my life. I mean, And as few mics as possible. Yeah. And, you know, Tom used, I'll tell you, he used four mics on the drums and one in the room. Really? Okay. Yep. He didn't take a DI to the bass. He only mic'd the bass amp. He okay. mic'd the guitar amp. I mean, he really simplified everything and that's why those records you ever listen to an old blues record and go man this record sounds amazing and you think wait a minute this was recorded in 1959 if they had an 8 track they didn't have an 8 track no this was recorded on probably 2 track with, with 4 mics in the room it was probably direct to disc well, no, pro well what they used to do is they had a 2 track machine and then they'd be able to do an overdub on the sync head right okay so you actually had three tracks, and then everything was recorded live, and the engineer would actually mix the session live. You know, so the musicians had to know how to play. Yeah. Right? There was no fixing it in the mix. Right? The most important element in any recording session is what's on the other end of the mic. The rest of it is completely superfluous. You can have the greatest fidelity in the world, and if it's a turd, you got a great sound in turd. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, you know, I've always I always believed that if you if you're not getting the sound you want, don't tweak a knob, just change the mic. You know? Move the mic. Move, yeah, move, move the it mic. or change it, you know? Move the mic a centimeter, it's gonna make a huge difference. One of the biggest things I learned from Tom was making the kick drum to make it off axis and outside of the drum. Right, finding that sweet spot. Find the sweet spot. Find the sweet spot on the guitar amp as well. Yeah. Start at twelve o'clock and go one degree, have somebody go out in the room and move the mic one degree till you find every speaker has a sweet spot. Oh, yeah, yeah. So tell me a little bit about the lineup on this. Who's playing on it? <laughs> me. That's it? 
Um, Dave Keys plays piano, and Jason Ricci plays harmonica on two tracks. Okay. And I'm playing everything else. Now, um, you're working with Frank Rozak to kind of yeah. get it out there and, and get it to radio and do PR. Yes, tell, and we're having great success. Yeah, tell me about that relationship. How is that, that working um, for you? I've been working with Frank for five years. He's the most honest, straightforward, no BS guy I've ever met. He's a former New Yorker, so he and I get along well in that sense. Because what I hate more than anything is bullshit, man. Yeah. You know, tell me the truth. You want to tell me something that I don't want to hear, I can accept it. But don't lie to me. Don't BS me, you know? Frank's completely straight up. He does not pull punches. And he's the right guy for Papa Chubby. So I'm very lucky to have him in my corner. And this is also the first record we're doing with, with my French label, Dixie Frog, who is now becoming an international label. And they've released the record in North America. So I'm very excited about that. And they will have further releases coming so um, they're great people I've been working with them for over almost 30 years okay well let's let's talk a little bit about the music industry um, sure I mean let's face it you know we the elephant in the room here is that the consumer has embraced streaming as a way to consume music uh, there's Sadly. no yeah <laughs> unfortunately there's no way around that uh, and and the problem with that is is that now the consumer, since we've been in this now for several years, um, in fact, almost ten years of streaming, uh, the consumer no longer looks at recorded music as a product to purchase anymore. So that really cuts into the uh, independent artist. Um, how has that shift in in uh, in perception by the uh, consumer affected you as an artist? I think the demographic has a lot to do with it. I think older people still buy music. I think younger people have been conditioned to not buy music and scream it more for free. Um, I think everybody streams music, let's face it. uh, You know, here's the deal, man, and I'm going to be really honest about this. Spotify needs to just go away. And um, they're ripping off artists blind. And any artist who posts their Spotify stats on social media is basically bragging about being raped you know um, I don't do it and I don't believe in Spotify unfortunately it's reality but there's some light on this too man um, you know as an artist we still sell lots of CDs we sell them from the stage we sell them by mail order you know people still want CDs there's still a, a market for CDs especially in people like 30 to 60 I think vinyl sales are bigger and better than ever because people know it's amazing to play young people vinyl for the first time and watch their faces you know they light up they're like holy cow this sounds great you know you don't realize what crap streaming is until you put it up against something else right so um i don't think it's over man i don't think it's over i think that um you know look it 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 what it's done is it's made um, music more about touring than ever because your main point of purchase right now is your merch table on your gigs, man. You know, right? You know, or or, or Amazon where you're going to get like six dollars a CD. You know, well, you know, make the- I think one of the things that happened when when the uh, industry went to streaming is that it started to diminish the the music industry's middle class. You know what I mean? Those musicians who looked at music as a career. And not necessarily looking for stardom. They're not looking for, you know, this mass amount of, um, of uh, you know, household name appeal. But they were making a living, paying their bills. And yeah, that I, really... I the opposite. I, I... Oh, there you go. <laughs> Sorry about that. That was... That's my phone. That. Who's that? That's that That was Sam Bluesman Taylor. He's my uh, oh, ringtone. Yeah, I know him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I used to manage That's him. That's right. Oh, awesome, dude. Yeah. Um, I disagree. I think it's the opposite way around, man. I think that the current situation has actually made it more viable for independent artists because if you can get some gigs, and you know, the whole thing for art- artists right now is to have a healthy merch table. You need to have multiple items with your brand on them. People want to buy your stuff. They want to own your music. Where are they going to get it? 
You know, if they don't buy it at your shows, they're not going to find it in the local record store. Maybe they'll find Papa Shabby, but not like, you know, your average band that's just starting out. It's hard for new acts now. It really is. If you're not established, it's hard, man. But um, I think, you know, it's everything's gotten, as, as much as it's gotten more, more um, insular, like you're saying, I think it's gotten more open at the same time. Well, you know, streaming, we know that streaming is not going away. Uh, but, it, but you know the but, artists that really got hurt were like, fucking, oh, excuse my friend, sir. That's okay. This is, this. Is, <laughs> go ahead, go for it. You know, like sticks. Like, the dinosaur bands that were selling, like, you know, 500,000 records are now selling 20,000 records. You know? Right. Like, the reason is, they're, they're you know, they don't service their public in that way, man. With me, man, I go out with a van full of merch, I come home empty. And people have bought my music. And then, you know, we, we know how to report those those sales now to SoundScan and hopefully get on the charts. Right, on the billboard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that, that I see coming down the pike, um, one of the big problems, Spotify is great if you want to have a worldwide market and be able to reach them. But again, we know that they're not paying an equitable amount of money no. to the artists. Um, there is this technology coming down the pike, which is streaming services based on the blockchain. Uh, this technology that made cryptocurrency uh, a reality. And um, there's this one called Audius where Katy Perry and Jason Dorello, they're all investing in, where they're saying they're going to pay up to 90% of the income revenue directly back to the artist. And they're going to get paid immediately upon a stream. So there's no lag time, no aggregator, no in-between guy, and there's no company because the people who put up the content will own the service. You know what I mean? They're going to be shareholders of that service by the virtue of their content. So it's, it's a whole new technology. I think we'll even the playing field a little bit. What do you think of that as as a as a possible future for streaming? Hello. Sorry, buddy. Yeah. I know too many. I knew too many artists who have gone through the sixties and seventies and have nothing, nothing. Especially in the blues, man. It's really sad when you know you meet some of these old guys and they're broke, man. You know, they might have a big name, but they're broke. And um, it's wrong, man. And um, anything that puts money into the pockets of the people who created the content, I'm all for. That's all I could say. Okay. Now, um, one of the things, you know, when the pandemic hit, um, of course, touring got shut down. And a lot of artists went to the Internet and started doing live streams. They started working their social media. And... All of a sudden, they started to realize that the fans really like this kind of behind-the-scenes, almost reality show type of <laughs> mentality. They do. You know, and it, it's all about branding now. Branding is now is. the new product. It is. It is. And we have a wonderful live stream every day called Bong Hits with okay. Papa Chubby. With Bong Hits. 420 Bong Hits with Papa Chubby. Every day on my Papa Chevy page, we do it. And it's been an amazing thing for the fans. We just start, I mean, look, when the pandemic hit, I started playing online. And then, of course, I started doing shows online. And then I did benefits online. And then I was teaching online. And in all honesty, after about six months, people had enough of it. People had enough of streaming shows. It went from everybody watching and donating to nobody watching and donating. Because it just became... It was too much of it, you know? Right. So, but you're right. Fans want to be part of your life, man. So by doing something stupid like we do every day, and it really is a very stupid live feed. It's just me and my wife sitting around with the dogs in the living room, and we do bonk hits and talk mad shit. And <laughs> um, we get thousands of people on there from all over the world every day, and it's a lot of fun, man. And um, it's taken on a life of its own which is even better. You see, here's a good example, man. Take Prince, right? You know what Prince's real name was? No. Prince. 
prince. Okay. He was an organic manifestation. The circumstances in life that created that man happened. It wasn't a created entity. It happened organically. That's the most powerful thing you could do. You could apply that to any artist you want to. Stevie Ray Vaughan, man. Stevie Ray Vaughan just happened. He was this poor kid from Texas who loved the blues, had an older brother play guitar, went out on the road, played 300 shows a year, man. You know, that's how he, he, that's how the icon happened, man. And it was organic. So that's what's lacking now. There's so much that's created. There's so much that's fake out there. When people see something real, they latch onto it. Yeah, I, I agree. Now, you know, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking oh, no with problem, us. Bro. It's always a pleasure to have you on. And it's always uh, a pleasure to be on. We're going to give everyone out there an Indie Blues double shot from your new release. You guys Ooh. are going to love this. Turn it up loud. Screw the neighbors. We're going to have some fun tonight. <laughs> and don't forget to check out uh, Bong Hits. <laughs> I'm going to have to check that out. 420 Bong Hits with Papa Chubby and Mistress Mary Beth, M.O.S. Okay, we'll have to definitely check that out. Yeah, you got to.
when you leave this world You leave naked It's just another lesson learned But I'm tired of being burned Strong now I need a new
Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. Make you shout now, honey. Gonna make. 